someone engages in non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, a common question parents and caregivers have is, what do we tell their brother or sister? Do we tell them? Those who self-harm deserve our full support and empathy, and hopefully this podcast has underscored that with every episode. Because loving and supporting each other and offering empathy is a non-zero-sum game, meaning increasing support for one person doesn't mean decreasing support for another, I think it's important we not forget about supporting siblings of those who self-injure. So how can parents of someone who self-injures, whether that someone is a child or adult, determine if they should share that information with a sibling? What should parents do or say if they learn that the one self-injuring has made their siblings promise not to tell mom and dad about their self-injury? And how might the sibling's age influence these decisions and conversations? And what if parents are worried that a sibling will pick up the same behavior from their brother or sister who self-injures? To answer these questions and to talk about common emotional experiences of siblings of those who self-injure and how parents can validate their experiences and offer age-appropriate conversations, I am joined today from London, England by Dr. Amy Lucas. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISSS. Dr. Amy Lucas is a clinical psychologist with lived experience of mental health difficulties at an early age and professional interests in trauma, anxiety, and altered states of consciousness. She is chief clinical lead at Speak Health, a digital health platform specializing in the support of parents and carers of young people who self-harm. You can check out their resources at joinspeak.com, speak spelled S-P-E-E-K, and I'll add the link to the episode notes for those wanting to learn more. Most of Dr. Lucas's experiences sit within child and adolescent mental health services at both community and inpatient settings, and she brings a passion for helping families and networks come together to support young people who are struggling. Additionally, she's vice president of the International Society for Maladaptive Daydreaming, a nonprofit mental health organization, as well as clinical and research supervisor and guest lecturer at universities and hospitals in the UK. It's great to have you, Dr. Lucas. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. How did you become interested in self-injury, specifically in treating self-injury? Yeah, well, for me, my interest initially started with personal experience. So when I was younger, I struggled a lot with my own mental health. And as part of that, self-harm became a way of coping with the things that I was going through. I think then as a clinician, I became a lot more aware later on about the impact of self-harm on the wider network, particularly on the family, which is something that, you know, when you're going through it, when you're younger, maybe you don't pay so much attention to, you're not so aware of. And of course, as a clinician, I can spend, you know, that hour with a young person in the room doing some kind of individual work, which is incredibly important and incredibly valuable. But of course, then you send that young person out and they spend the rest of their hours and days in the family home or perhaps at school. And actually, there is not so much support out there for parents and others in the network for supporting that process of recovery. So I just became really interested when the opportunity came up to work with Speak and to specialize a little more in this area. 
Thank you for sharing and disclosing your own history of self-harm. I don't know, is that something that you tend to disclose when you're working with parents or individuals with lived experience of self-injury and treatment? Yeah, I do actually work quite a lot with disclosure. I think always when I am offering that kind of information to whether it's parents or even sometimes young people, I'm thinking very carefully about what the reason would be for my disclosure. If I feel that it's going to help them to feel more comfortable, to open up, to feel more understood, or if there is something that I can share that will be perhaps, yeah, just valuable to them in any way, then I'm very, very open to working from that place. And I think, you know, a lot of us working in the psychological field are perhaps identifying a bit as wounded healers. You know, we're not just professionals, but we're human beings. And I think being able to connect on that level can really help both people in that sort of journey towards recovery. And I know everyone's story is different. In fact, we interviewed in season one, Dr. Sarah Victor on lived experience of psychologists, psychologists with lived experience of self-injury. And yeah, she had disclosed her own history of self-injury. And since then, I've met so many more psychologists who've openly shared. And I'm just so humbled and grateful that people would share that, especially on this public platform. So yeah, thank you for sharing your story. Of course. I love that. Well, I will keep that in the back of my mind as we go through these questions I have for you, specifically in this case about parents and supporting siblings of people who self-injure. So how can parents of a child who self-injures determine if they should share that information with that child's siblings, whether those siblings are older or even younger? Yeah, this is such a good question. I think it's so natural, isn't it, as a parent that you're going to want to protect your children from difficult topics of conversation or from something that you fear maybe will kind of harm them in some way. Self-harm is obviously a very frightening topic to approach. But unfortunately, what we do know is that self-harm affects the whole family. It's not just the individual and that includes the siblings. So I think one of the risks of kind of avoiding those conversations and sharing that information or perhaps trying to hide a young person's self-harm from other siblings in the family is that A, you maybe miss out on the opportunity to support them with things that you as a parent may not yet be aware of that they need. But also it can be a really good opportunity in those conversations to guide siblings and other young people through how they understand self-harm and maybe point them towards other healthier directions as well. So I think a few things to consider. Obviously, it's not always in the best interest to share the information, but some parents will find it helpful to think about, obviously, the perspective of the young person who is self-harming. Ideally, you know, having collaborative kind of discussions with them about what they do and don't want shared or why they might or might not want information shared. Also kind of thinking about whether or not that sibling is likely to hear information about the self-harm, their their sibling self-harm anyway from other sources, you know, particularly other people at school or people in peer groups. Or it might be that siblings are already asking questions. And these are all things that parents maybe can be mindful of when deciding whether or not it's useful to share information with them. And I know you and some other psychologists do some parent groups through Speak Health and actually touch on this topic. And I'm so glad that you do because I think that's a common question that parents of multiple children, one of which are more self-injures, like how do they have these conversations with the other siblings? And it can be stressful for a sibling as well when they find out that their brother or sister is 
engaging in the behavior and not knowing what to do. So what if a young person who self-harms asks their parents not to tell their siblings about their self-harm? It's a really tricky one because, like you say, parents are kind of caught between, in that case, the young person that's self-harming. Maybe they really want to not just support them, but maybe there's a bit of fear as well of doing anything that might upset them or trigger further incidents, but also needing to be mindful of looking after their siblings and making sure that everyone in the family is kept as safe as possible. I think in those cases, and you're right, we do work with families who ask us a lot of questions about how to talk to siblings, again, is to kind of consider the perspective quite seriously. So being curious with your young person, what is it that makes them resistant to sharing that information with their siblings? Because the more that we can kind of understand about what that resistance might be, there might be areas that a parent can address or resolve or help to reassure that young person. Of course, uh, it can be helpful for parents just to spend a bit of time helping that young person understand why, from their perspective, it's important that they do share some information with a sibling, because some young people might be very focused on what they're going through and not perhaps so aware of everybody else's position in the family, which is understandable. In particular, those conversations where that can be had is kind of agreeing together a little bit about maybe when and how and what is shared. So it might be things like, Parents might recognize, okay, actually, it's not important that we have these conversations with a sibling now. But if we reach this certain point, that's when we might agree that we can say something. Or it might be, you know, okay, the young person is happy for us to share something, but they want to do it when they're out of the house. Maybe they're at a friend's house and they don't have to be around the sibling immediately after that conversation. And thinking specifically about what's kind of shared in that space. And of course, only sharing exactly as much as is needed, which is the rules that we would live by as clinicians as well, right, is sharing on a need to know basis and being very clear about why or the purpose of sharing that information. So I think wherever possible, just having that open dialogue with the young person who doesn't want their siblings in the loop and really taking seriously their perspective, but also bringing a little bit of your own understanding about how this might be important for their siblings to hear about. And I know in my own clinical work, working with young people who self-injure, sometimes their worry is that their younger sibling will learn about the behavior or even follow suit. And so they get really anxious about that or appropriately concerned as an older sibling. What are some common emotional experiences of siblings of those who self-injure? Yeah, I think very much similar to parents and other people that love that person, it can be a real mixed bag. And I don't think it's something that we talk very much about, whether it's in research or in practice or as a community, that siblings and their experiences can very easily get quite forgotten. But just like other people, I think they can very often experience a lot of confusion. And sometimes I know that maybe siblings will feel some distance that's created between them and their sibling. For example, a sibling might feel like they don't know who their sibling is anymore or they don't understand how this happened and not really being sure about what their role is, what they need to do, should do, can do. A lot of fear. It's common for siblings to feel um, very frightened about what this means, what the future might look like, perhaps feeling a real sense of responsibility as well. They might also, just like the parents, be walking on eggshells a little bit and not wanting to upset their sibling and that can really disrupt 
sibling dynamics, depending on the nature of that relationship, whether there's a lot of playfulness or but maybe the sibling becomes a bit Maybe they feel they have to be more careful about what they say or do around their sibling. A lot of anger, particularly about the impact that self-harm can have on family life, on the sibling themselves. It might be feeling quite envious of the added attention that a young person is receiving as a result of their self-harm. And one thing I think that we don't speak enough about is this societal stigma that still exists around self-harm and particularly how those narratives translate into school settings. So a lot of siblings can feel maybe nervous or perhaps even an internalized sense of shame, not wanting their peers at school to find out or worrying about what people might say or judging their sibling and feeling protective of them as well. So again, it depends a little bit on the nature of the sibling relationship and the individuals themselves, but I think it can be a really mixed bag of emotional experiences for siblings. Yeah, I even have some friends, adult friends whose younger siblings used to self-injure. And I think it's really important to get their perspective within the family dynamic. The tricky part, especially for a podcast, is to respect the privacy of their sibling with a history of self-injury. So I haven't gotten them to be on the podcast yet or other individuals who have siblings who self-injure to get their experience as a sibling. Now, you've mentioned a number of these emotional experiences. How can parents validate these siblings' experiences? I love this question because validation is something that I speak so much about in my work with parents, whether that's with siblings or with the young people that are self-harming or just with each other. I think we could all use a little bit more validation, right? (laughs) But yeah, it's a really important one. I think one of the key things when it comes to validating young people and siblings in particular, is to allow them the space firstly to express themselves and to express themselves honestly. So if siblings feel like they can't speak to parents or they're going to overwhelm parents or there just isn't space for them, or those kind of channels of communication aren't open, then validation can't happen. And validation is part of what reinforces and promotes them being able to bring more of their experience to the table. As parents, I think obviously you're already dealing with a huge amount. So being able to pause and check in a little bit with what's going on inside you when you're having these interactions so that as a parent, you can learn to respond instead of reacting. So perhaps you've noticed that you're feeling very frightened or anxious when you're speaking to a sibling or you're feeling overwhelmed or maybe feeling quite angry. You know, it's understandable that a parent might cut over a sibling or be quite reactive or very emotive in their responses. But just checking in, taking a beat so that you can really allow the sibling's experience and speak to that in a more helpful way. And in particular with validation is reflecting the feeling back to demonstrate that you understand and that you have heard and accept what it is that they're going through. And it sounds like such a simple thing, but I find time and time again that this is one of the most powerful things that I can work through with parents is that habitual response we often fall into, which is wanting to fix the problem, which is wanting to offer an alternative perspective. It's wanting to remove the pain or the suffering that a young person might be feeling, particularly when it's your own children. And so it can be very easy to inadvertently dismiss what they're saying or experiencing, telling them, don't be silly, it's all going to be fine, or no, no, everything's okay. Or, well, if you could just X, Y, Z. And actually, one of the most powerful things I think a parent can do for a sibling is just to acknowledge and reflect back 
what it is that they've said. So if a young person says to a parent that they feel like they're walking on eggshells around the home a lot more, then being able to say back to them, I don't feel that you need to walk on eggshells. I don't think that you should have to feel that way, but I can totally understand why you feel that way. I totally get that. Just that little bit of validation helps young people to feel that they are really seen and understood. And it's not necessarily agreeing with the perspective. It's not necessarily condoning a behavior, but it's acknowledging and accepting that the experience is real and the experience is valid and acceptable. And then, of course, providing support off the back of those conversations. If there is anything that a parent can do to make things feel a bit easier for the sibling or to support them in any way, then this will kind of really show that they are taking it seriously, that experience that's been communicated with them and that the sibling matters just as much as the young person who is self-harming. Absolutely. Now, let's say that a parent has decided to go ahead and disclose to the sibling that their brother or sister is self-injuring. What are some things parents can do when discussing their child's self-injury with their siblings and what things should they avoid doing? Mm. One thing I know that some parents often like to start with is trying to get a sense in the first instance of what that sibling already knows. So maybe asking what they've heard, maybe inquiring a bit into what their current understanding of self-harm is in general, just getting a sense of where that sibling is at within themselves. And then I think in terms of actually having those conversations with them is of course, one of the main things would be to be very calm and non-judgmental. Particularly, we don't want to give siblings any sense of panic or a sense of responsibility. We want to try and avoid those things. So just being very calm and in that sense, going in maybe a bit prepared to maybe answer some questions or some of the things that might come up that you maybe notice as a parent yourself that you feel a bit nervous about in that conversation. Being very clear and very direct can often be a helpful way to go. So avoiding vague explanations or sort of darting around the topic. I think sometimes parents are afraid that they'll put ideas in young people's heads or that maybe they want to have the conversation, but they're also still trying to protect them. Although that is, you know, it's important to strike a balance without the kind of clear explanations and information. Sometimes that can leave siblings feeling more confused. So being able to say explicitly, if that's the way a parent decides to go, Sometimes when people are upset, they hurt themselves and we're doing everything we can to understand this better and to support your sibling and whatever it might be. But just being very clear about the information, offering a lot of reassurance if that's needed. And I think one of the main things really is just focusing that conversation on the sibling. So you may go in as a parent knowing what it is you want to convey. You may also have things from the young person who's self-harming that they would like you to get across. But the primary purpose of that conversation really should be focused on the sibling and informing them and then supporting them and helping them to process that information and with their role moving forward. So that also might be thinking a bit about sharing with them clearly what your expectations are of them as a parent as well. And I know some parents like to be as honest and open as they can with their children, which makes sense. They're like, well, I tell my kids everything. But sometimes oversharing of information could overwhelm younger children in particular and older ones, depending on how developmentally appropriate that information is. So yes, let's be honest with our kids, but we don't necessarily have to go into detail of all of our household's financial difficulties, for instance. 
It, that happens. That happens. So can you talk about how these conversations might be different with a younger sibling compared to an older sibling? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the general appropriateness of the level of detail that's shared. And, and that kind of relates a little bit to, I suppose, that idea of sharing only on what's on a need to know basis. So being very clear about that going in and yeah, absolutely. Just being mindful of the developmental stage. I think when it comes to younger children, of course, we perhaps want to hold a little bit more those emotions that, you know, as a parent that you may be having yourself as well and trying to be quite careful not to spill those onto young children that maybe aren't equipped to understand or manage those emotions with you for you. Younger children in particular, they tend to be a lot more prone to, let's say, magical thinking and some more, I want to use the word, self-centered explanations for difficult things. So for example, young children may be more prone to reaching conclusions that it's all their fault, that it's something that they've done, particularly if they're really struggling to understand. Clearly, it's a complex thing to make sense of for a young child. Another thing that I think can be different for younger siblings, sometimes it might be harder for them to perhaps differentiate what they might have perceived as historically bad behavior, inverted commas, versus self-harm being a behavior that takes place because somebody is struggling with something or needing to communicate something. And so I think helping much, much younger siblings, maybe to understand the difference between those two things, that very often when a sibling is self-harming, and especially things around that, such as low mood or high levels of distress, sometimes this can look like something to a younger sibling, like moodiness, sulking, being rude, acting out in some way. Uh, So helping them to understand that there may be a little bit more compassion and a different approach to these sorts of behaviours rather than just a discipline, which they might be more used to. And I think young children also typically, you know, not always, but they may be likely to have more questions, perhaps around trying to make sense of it all, not just around the well-being of their siblings. So as a parent, if you can be a little bit prepared in that conversation, you don't have to have all the answers, but being a little bit prepared to answer some of those questions, you know, maybe taking in some metaphors or taking in some information that you can look at and think about together. One of the great things about having these conversations with younger siblings is it provides a really good opportunity for parents to guide their children much, much earlier on around difficult topics like self-harm. So you can dictate a little their understanding of this and also their understanding of feelings and emotions in general, how we feel them, how we express them. And you might say to a young person, there are other ways that we can respond to big feelings and you might think about that with them. So actually these conversations can open up very helpful age-appropriate discussions. And again, focusing on the sibling enables you to direct a little bit more how you want that conversation to go. I like that, keeping the focus on that sibling. One of the many things that you said that I really liked was related to communicating to the younger sibling or just to the sibling in general that that we're not focusing on self-harm as a bad thing, but couching it in terms of your brother, your sister, your sibling is struggling emotionally and we're not here to shame the behavior. We're here to support them. But at the same time, I'm here as your parent to support you in supporting them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You're really, really helping them to understand that this is something that can affect everyone that the parents are supporting and not something that's being punished. 
So for siblings that find out that their brother or sister is self-injuring and they don't know what to do with that information, whether they're a little kid, young sibling or older sibling, do I tell mom and dad? I don't want to tattle on them. So how should parents direct siblings to respond when their brother or sister is starting to harm themselves? And should these siblings be encouraged to report to parents in these situations, in every single situation? That's a tricky spot for a young person, a sibling to be in. Yeah, I think it's one of the trickiest questions to answer, possibly. I mean, with all of these things, it's always on a case by case basis, right? And that will vary. But I think one of the key things, and I kind of mentioned it earlier around the sibling, it's really important, I think, that the sibling knows that they can play a role in helping their sibling's recovery from self-harm or helping them to overcome self-harm. At the same time, we don't want them to feel burdened or pressured, A, to, to do anything that they feel uncomfortable with but be to fix the problem and feel that that rests on their shoulders. So I often say to parents, it's not so much about what you should do or what you should say to siblings. It's kind of how you say it. But to that end, absolutely, because we don't want siblings to feel responsible for their siblings' self-harm, it's really important in most cases that their parents can guide siblings to tell or report to an adult, whether that's them, the parents, or an identified trusted adult, if they find that their sibling is self-harming or their sibling has, they worry that they are at risk of self-harming. Um, and it could be really helpful to have that conversation also with the young person that's self-harming as well, so that this is clear to everybody in the household that this is what the parents have asked or requested of the sibling. Because, you know, when we think about sibling relationships, I mean, every relationship is different, but some siblings may feel that they really need to guard the trust that they have with their sibling. And at the same time, they may feel very conflicted and very frightened about their sibling getting hurt or doing something to hurt themselves. So giving them clear expectations and permission to tell an adult and making sure that the young person who's self-harming is also aware of that can take a lot of that conflict and pressure off. At the same time, we don't want to then go and punish siblings if they do see something and they don't tell the parents. So, for example, if a sibling goes into, you know, the young person's bedroom and maybe they find some sharp items or something that they might typically use. You don't want a sibling to feel in a conflict about what to do with that. So giving clear instructions is great, but we don't then want to punish them if they, for whatever reason, don't choose not to do that. And the other kind of simple thing that parents can guide a sibling to do is to follow a safety plan. So very often I'll work with parents to put together a document or a step-by-step -step process for how to support in the event either a incident either to prevent that or respond to it or if they're in crisis for example if the young person is has physically hurt themselves to a dangerous degree or maybe they're feeling suicidal and that safety plan can be an agreement between everybody with some helpful suggestions as well for coping strategies and reminders of strengths and resilience and so on that that might be an easier thing for a sibling to grasp that they can either remind their sibling of that safety plan or they themselves can maybe follow some steps on the safety plan because that's what's been agreed. 
I like the idea of having clear steps and suggestions for the siblings to know what to do, because I think sometimes we forget, even as parents, that siblings care about their siblings. You know, they want their best, just as we as parents have the best interest of all our children in mind. So the siblings want to help. And I think there is that struggle for some siblings, I can imagine, who might feel conflicted on, is it my responsibility to keep an eye on my brother or my sister to let my parents know if they're harming themselves? Mm-hmm. You're suggesting like that's a responsibility that they should not take. That's not on them, but they may take it upon themselves if their parents don't guide them or they don't have the guidance. They're left to their own decisions and figuring out what to do in those situations where their siblings self-injuring. Yeah, this is it. Exactly. And I think you really touched on something important there, which is, you know, in most cases, siblings do care about their siblings. And naturally, if that's the case, they're going to want to monitor the situation. They're going to want to understand what's happening. Not always, but very often. So having a little bit of containment around that can be really, really helpful for everybody involved, I think. Yeah, we don't want to parentify that sibling either. We don't want to have them be our eyes and ears in the home when we're not there to tattle on their sibling. And that's one thing I may have said in another podcast episode, but working with young people who self-injure or have friends that self-injure, they feel conflicted on should they tell their parents or an adult and they're like, well, that's just going to be tattling. They're going to get in trouble. It's like, well, tattling is to get in trouble, but telling an adult is to get them support and getting the help that they need. So in line with that, what should parents do or say if they learn that their child who is self-injuring makes their younger or even older sibling promise not to tell mom and dad about their self-injury? Because that can happen. Yeah, it can happen and, and does happen quite frequently, particularly if there's a, a close relationship between the siblings as well. I think the number one thing with this is, again, that curiosity. So the first point of call as a parent is to try and understand what might be going on there. So firstly, for the young person that's self-harming to think about, well, why is it that they've made them promise this? You know, are they feeling ashamed of their self-harm? Are they feeling guilty and that they need to protect the parents in some way? You know, they're worried about how it will impact mum or dad. Is it that they're afraid that their parents will get angry or will take away self-harm as a coping mechanism and they're not ready for that? And so being curious about why can really lead to some other helpful avenues for resolution or just for addressing in their recovery journey. And also, of course, being curious about the position that the sibling finds themselves in. What was that like for them? How did that impact them? What did they decide to do? You know, if they didn't tell the parents, then why might they not have done what was going on there? You know, like, I guess we're kind of touching on the fact that siblings in their relationships, sometimes they will talk about things. And actually, that can be something that's really encouraged. So it might be that, you know, a sibling will share some things and not others, and maybe helping to think around a little bit around how they calculate those decisions. It's not going to be perfect, but might help in those situations. So curiosity can really help parents to address things that might be influencing a young person to make a sibling promise this and how a sibling then, you know, what they do with that. I think importantly is as a parent, just to remind both young people, all young people involved, the purpose of that request. If that is a request that you've made, it's just to kind of highlight and refresh on the importance of that. And again, from a non-judgmental and compassionate 
place. We do not want to come down hard on siblings for struggling and grappling with this position that they find themselves in or with the young person for making them promise not to because you know, whether it's self-harm or any other kind of struggle that a young person's going through, really, we're looking at this as young people trying to cope and to manage. And there is nearly always a reason for behavior. There is nearly always a reason for communication. So really working hard, we can't always know the ins and outs and young people themselves don't always know. But just as we would with anything else, just working hard to understand what went on there. And is there something underneath that can be attended to in order to make this feel easier for the young people? I like that empathic approach for both siblings, the one that self-injures and the one that doesn't, because it is a tough thing, especially if they're close. They're really close friends and siblings emotionally, and they don't want the other to get in trouble. They want them to get the support. I like the suggestion that you made about considering being curious, why might the sibling who self-injures not want the sibling to tell the parents? Why might the sibling who doesn't self-injure be conflicted on telling the parents or not telling the parents? Being able to have that empathy as a parent to think about both sides rather than coming down hard on either, because then we don't become, we're no longer safe, emotionally stable people to go to in those moments if the siblings think that or know that they're going to get in trouble. I tell parents this often that kids who self-injure know that parents are not going to approve of it. Right. Parents don't want their children harmed, whether it's by someone else or just circumstances or by their own hand. So kids know that their parents are not going to approve of this behavior. So do we really need as parents to tell them to stop it or to tell us every time your brother or sister is hurting themselves? That's just a tough position. So yeah, taking a kind and empathic approach, I think is really important for parents here. This is it. And also not underestimating what siblings can bring themselves, you know, without being dictated by parents on what they need to do. It's helpful to give them that guidance. But again, within that sibling relationship, they can be a wonderful support for their sibling in lots and lots of ways. It's just about not making them feel responsible for fixing it or that they need to carry all of that themselves if they also need support. That's really important. Absolutely. And a common question that I receive, and I'm sure you do as well, is what if parents are worried that the sibling will pick up the self-injury behavior from the other sibling? Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, this idea of self-harm contagion, you know, in vertical commas, is one that parents fear a lot. And unfortunately, we do know from the research and from clinical practice as well that Self-harm is a behavior that can be copied, it can be learned, it can be passed on in that sense. And we see that very commonly, particularly within high distress communities like inpatient settings for young people. We do see that within schools, that if a young person or a number of young people start self-harming, that other young people can then pick this up within peer groups, within sibling groups. So it is a very real thing, and I wouldn't want to hide that away. At the same time, you know, by having these sorts of conversations and taking some of these approaches, I think parents can do a lot to mitigate some of that risk, particularly, you know, as I was saying earlier about getting in there with guiding a little bit how young people's understanding of self-harm develops and their understanding of their emotions and other ways to regulate can be really useful in this context. And also as a parent, as best as possible, modelling for their children and young people, other ways to respond to challenging emotions and stressful situations. Maybe this can be a good opportunity, you know, to equip the whole family 
with new strategies and skills around managing those difficult circumstances. I think particularly if there is a potential risk around jealousy or envy, or or not even necessarily those emotions per se, but if there are times where the young person that's self-harming is receiving a lot more attention, so particularly if they're hospitalised or it might not be to that level, but it might be that there's a high stress period where they're really, really struggling. And there can be a lot going on around a young person when they're self-harming. Suddenly the whole network jumps in. You know, there might be more school meetings. There might be visits to the GP. There might be more time with parents. There might be referrals to child and adolescent mental health services. And I've seen in my own practice, you know, that siblings would kind of, particularly the young ones, maybe get dragged along to those appointments, but they feel very left out and it's difficult to manage all of that. So I think just being mindful as a parent of sharing your attention wherever possible, particularly during those periods, maybe increasing that quality time that you're spending with other siblings and just monitoring what's going on for them, not assuming that they're fine and getting hyper-focused on the young person that's really struggling and miss those signs. So of course, we can't pick up everything. But when there is a sibling that's self-harming, I think just looking out for those signs in those warning signs in the other siblings can be useful and just generally monitoring how they're doing and inquiring into their well-being as well. Yeah, I know of situations or families where the younger sibling did start to self-injure after their older sibling did. And parents, I mean, they know their kids best and what typically what approach works better for one child versus the other and sometimes for the younger one just simply telling them like nope stop that's enough that's what they need to to hear Mm -hmm. especially if they're younger and more concrete in their understanding they're like oh okay I better not do this versus maybe the older one is like I've been doing this for a while that approach isn't going to work for me right now and one thing I was thinking about is my comment earlier about my friends that are adults whose younger siblings had self-injured what about adult siblings In the case where the younger sibling self-injures and they're a minor, or an adult whose adult sibling self-injures, what suggestions or guidance or tips could you offer them? Because if they might be listening to this podcast because of their sibling self-injuring. Well, I think you touched on a really important point here, which is that there isn't actually a huge amount of support out there for siblings of any age of young people who self-harm or of siblings who self-harm. And so that really is a challenge. And I know that there are perhaps online communities that siblings might be able to turn to if they want to seek a bit more of that peer-to-peer support. But it really is an unrecognized issue that's often not spoken about. I think, again, very similarly in these cases, if the sibling in this sense is an adult, then it really comes down to, A, what they feel they would like, how they would like to be involved in supporting their sibling and what they feel that they can manage. So as an adult, you might be the one that goes to your parents to have those conversations or to think with them about what your role could be. And that will depend a lot on your relationship with your younger sibling or the dynamic, or if it's an adult sibling, is thinking yourself about that relationship and what your role might be in that and having a conversation with your sibling directly about that. I think one of the things that I will often work with families in general to think about is rather than trying to address the self-harm, it's thinking about providing a sort of recovery-oriented environment. So it might be in particular looking at things like just improving the communication between you. 
It might be improving the bond and the relationship and that kind of safety that you have. So as a sibling, as an adult sibling, it might be that one of the most powerful things you can do is to be another figure of support that you're there to talk to, maybe to spend quality time with, maybe to help out with boosting that sibling's quality of life, particularly if it's a younger sibling, you know, so helping them to get more involved with hobbies that they once enjoyed but have started to withdraw from or helping with some of the school runs or whatever it might be, but just taking a broader all-round approach to their support and thinking about their development and well-being in a way that maybe when it's a sibling who's a child that's not really on them and they perhaps don't have the tools <laughs> to provide that kind of support. What are some other common parent caregiver questions I haven't thought of? Sometimes it's hard for parents to even know what to ask. Yeah, actually, I work with a lot of parents that will ask about support for siblings, but very often funnily enough, it's one of the things that gets forgotten. So it's actually very limited that the pool of questions, if you like, that I'm asked tends to be sort of similar things over and over again. I suppose one thing that we might consider is parents will often say, you know, they have the conversations with siblings, or they make themselves available for those conversations. But actually, siblings don't really like to have those kind of big, intense chats. Or they don't like to delve into their emotional experience and their parents are not people that they would share that with. And of course, young people can feel this way regardless of the situation, you know, that they do have experiences, but maybe they share those with friends or they share those with other adults and not with mum and dad. And so perhaps there's a question in there around how parents might support siblings in other ways beyond having those conversations. So I think just knowing a little bit about your young person you know, it might be that they don't want to do those kind of deep chats, but maybe they will appreciate more frequent check-ins. And it might be when you're driving the car, or it might be over text if they're more comfortable that way, but just kind of letting them know they're not forgotten and giving them those those opportunities or communicating that you are communicating that they are on your mind, that you are checking in with them. It might be that young people are more like doers they're a bit more they like to take action and they really want to help but maybe don't know how so parents might give them permission or encourage them to help in other ways like whether that's helping with chores around the house or again not beyond the remit of what you would want your young people to be doing but just emphasizing to them that these are ways that they can be really really helpful if that's really important to them and they feel that they need to be doing something maybe just encouraging them to do more of what they love, you know, like making sure that there is space and capacity to take them to particular hobbies or have their friends over, just making sure that that doesn't get lost and really giving them permission to focus on their life as much as they might be focusing on their siblings' struggles right now. Yeah, that's great because I think sometimes a sibling can feel all the attention and focus in the family is going on their brother or sister who is self-injuring and they feel left out because maybe parents aren't thinking of them as much because they seem to be doing well, even though there's also stress that they're experiencing. So those recommendations that you give as far as having conversations in the car or looking for opportunities just to check in with them and let them know that as a parent, you still want to be there for them and you're still thinking of them and focused on them as well. Mm, it's really common. I mean, we talked a bit about them maybe picking up those behaviors, you know, picking up self-harm, but actually it's really common with mental health in general, not just in self-harm, that when one sibling is really struggling and the parents are very focused on that, 
that the other siblings, no matter what's going on in their life, they will start to withhold that information. They'll start to squash it or they won't want to burden their parents with things that they're going through because they know they've already got a lot on their plate or they don't feel that this is as important or as much as possible. We kind of want to give them permission to still exist and be part of the family and to access their parents exactly the way that they've always needed. Yeah, might just need a little bit of encouragement to do that and reassurance. Yeah, it could be lonely for those siblings because they don't want to burden their parents any more than maybe they feel burdened already with whatever's going on in life, including the stress as far as how to respond to the child who self-injures. But the sibling probably worried about their sibling who self-injures in worrying about overwhelming mom and dad or caregivers so they just stay stuck in feeling alone in their emotional difficulties and struggles. Yeah, absolutely. Based on our conversation today about supporting siblings of young people who self-harm, considering all the great tips and everything that you've already shared, what key recommendation or takeaway would you give to parents? I think it's the hope. I think it's the reassurance that they can offer siblings, reassuring them that it can get better. You know, when, when we're young, we don't have that same life experience that teaches us that these stages and phases and struggles are transient and that they pass. And we're very consumed. Young people are very consumed with the now, with what's going on and happening now. It's really sad that a sibling might feel that when a sibling starts self-harming, that they maybe lost them forever or that this is always going to be the way things are moving forward, particularly during periods of high stress or difficulty for them to be reminded that things can change and that their sibling actually is very likely to overcome this and that family life can be different again. I think we can't underestimate the power of that hope and parents are probably in a good position, albeit they might struggle to feel that hope sometimes, but they're in a good position to instill some of that in their young people. And similarly, then, what key recommendation or takeaway would you give to siblings of individuals who self-injure, whether those siblings are youth or adults? Just to be there, not to try and fix it, not to feel that you have to wave a magic wand or change yourself in any way or do something special or uncomfortable or anything at all that will resolve the issue for your sibling. But the power of just being there to listen to them or maybe being a little bit kinder when you can see that they are going through a particularly difficult time and guarding that trust as well. You know, if if a sibling does share with you the ins and outs of some of their thoughts and feelings, or they're talking to you about that behavior, not to then go and post it all over social media or (laughs) share and disclose that with other peers at school. But yeah, really, really just to be there and not take on the burden of it, but to know that that in itself can be really powerful. What would you recommend to professionals, whether other psychologists, clinicians, researchers? I would just recommend that we all consider the siblings more. You know, there is research that looks at the impact of self-harm on the whole family. And that does include the siblings in clinical practice, in therapeutic practice, in research. The siblings are very often the afterthought. And there is not a lot out there. And I, I know that a lot of parents will go online And they'll be Googling how to support siblings, how to have conversations with siblings, how does this affect siblings? 
And it's really incredibly limited what resources they'll find. And that's because us as professionals at our end perhaps could be doing more to bring some of that knowledge and some of that understanding to the foreground. That's great. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience, whether they have siblings or not? Well, I obviously work in an organization that supports families of young people who self-harm. And so I suppose in this case, one message I would give to anybody out there who's struggling is where it's appropriate, because it's not always, but in most cases where it's appropriate, is just to let the family in as much as possible. Parents are not always going to get it right and siblings are not always going to say the best thing. And there might be a process of learning for everybody involved. But for the most part, family have the best intentions and they can be such an invaluable source of support in helping a young person or any person through that journey. So, yeah, I would just say have a think about what holds you back, overcome any of that shame, that guilt that might be holding you back. And if you can, just let the family in. Is there anything else that I didn't ask about that would be important for listeners to hear? I don't think so. I think you covered most of it. I would be really interested to hear for anybody that is listening, what their thoughts and reflections are or any feedback. Because of course, I'm always looking for ways to help in this area. And so it would be really great to hear if there are more things that people wish that they had heard. That actually gives me a great question for Spotify. So for Spotify, we are actually able to ask a question and do a poll, one for each episode. So I'll put that as an open-ended question for people to respond, and we can publish those for people to see when they listen, what other people are saying about what they want to communicate or hear. Amazing. I love that. Well, thank you, Dr. Lucas, for taking your time out of your day to share with us about, like you said, a not very commonly discussed topic, but siblings are important, and I'm glad we're highlighting the role that they have, not only knowing that it can be hard for them and they're not alone, but also knowing how they can support their sibling who may be self-injuring. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful and would like to give back, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to interact with us, we welcome you to respond to our questions and polls under each episode in Spotify. This podcast is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.